You're listening to The Gamer Podcast. I'm Eric from the Gamer.com editing team, and today we've got something a little bit different for you. I sat down with Jordan Thomas, best known for designing Fort Frolic from Bioshock and The Cradle from Thief Deadly Shadows. Jordan came by the podcast to chat about his game, The Blackout Club, a co-op horror game with a live interactive story. Jordan talked about his whole career, starting all the way back in the 90s with Draken, and shared a lot of details about the making of The Blackout Club. You're going to hear that interview in its entirety, starting right now. Jordan, your career started uh, in the 90s, right? The first game you worked on was the first Draken, wasn't it? Um... Technically, the first game that I worked on was a canceled remake of Hired Guns. Okay. Being made in the Unreal Tournament engine. Uh, Cygnosis hired me out of a online um, games review site called the Adrenaline Vault. Mm. And what they wanted me to do was to write sort of interchangeable advertisement and or story copy for hired guns like what really wasn't much of a difference uh during those years between story as wrapping paper and story as uh deep emotional connection like the players would project emotions on the things that were intended to be marketed uh sort of cynically and vice versa right like uh you'd often get people throwing a lot of work into into that stuff for no good reason um Anyway, uh, so they said, you know, we liked some of the stuff that you wrote for, um, I, I think, a Draken preview. Mm. And it was just, oh, God, it was florid. <laughs> it, was, it was basically <laughs> fanfic uh, embedded in the review. But they liked it because, again, uh, the standards of the time. And, and so uh, I, I worked simultaneously on that. And then eventually a combination contract script writing role. Um, working on the Draken script, which Cygnosis felt needed some help. Mm -hmm. Um, And also interning as a designer there where I was basically doing things like bringing coffee and building desks. It was very strange um, because I was an arm of their publisher in one sense, but also the coffee boy. (laughs) Well, thank God we don't have any cynical marketing stuffed into games writing these days. Right? Oh, no, 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 no. I, uh, the industry really found itself. And uh, I feel that we're entering a new era of earnestness and artistic integrity. It's always really fun for me to talk to developers that were there in like those early days of 3D. It must feel like a, a lifetime ago at this point with how far yes. we've come. I mean, when 3D games entered the scene, I was just a teenager, um, but obviously they they sort of derailed my my planned career. Everybody thought I would go into movies um, mm. or television. Uh, I was making, you know, um, wire puppets and and covering them in clay and and building little little stop motion movies. And I, I thought oh, that cool. would be my life because at the time that was an industry, uh, and. <laughs> And then uh, somewhat fortuitously, because because what what, what would happen to that later, um, video games came along and, and, you know, Doom and Quake and um, especially, you know, Daggerfall and some of the some of the, the sort of once CRPGs became popular, goodness, mm-hmm. I was swept away. 
And uh, yeah, um, I, I I saw 3D done badly, if if that's what you mean, <laughs> very very badly and embarrassingly. Uh, and I've worked on a few games that were that were on the fugly side, um, as as we say scientifically. <laughs> well, Draken was kind of ahead of its time. I mean the 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 third person action RPG genre. I don't know how much of that even existed at all before Draken. I think. Yes, um, definitely. There was a lot of love put into that game from the Psygnosis mm-hmm. perspective. It was like it seemed to be, uh, let's get us some of that Yon Tomb Raider money. Um, <laughs> uh, it, it was it was definitely trying to be the next Tomb Raider, but was built by people who were big enough nerds to make it about a girl riding a dragon and uh, a yeah. fairly you know cogent fantasy universe that they they wanted to breathe life into. And yeah. Um, I guess no pun intended, and and uh, a lot of allowing you to fly around and, and burn stuff on your dragon that was ambitious. Yeah, uh, and it certainly captured captured a young me. My connection was much more to the sequel because that one was on PS2, mm-hmm. and I think the first one was only on PC. Where did you have any involvement with uh, Ancient Gates at all? Zero. No, uh, okay. my experience uh, at Surreal was just I sort of didn't really take to their editor. The games that I was falling in love with at at that time were things like Thief and later Mm -hmm. Deus Ex, uh, which would really change my life. Um, And sort of what I felt like the the Draken levels were um, sort of trying to embody in terms of of principles of storytelling did not really work for me. And and Mm. I found the, the tools kind of impenetrable and just, you know, just didn't click. Um, I could have worked harder or um, uh, narrowed my focus, which has always been a struggle for me, uh, potentially, and gotten the job, but I didn't. And uh, meanwhile, the the writing stuff seemed to be my future, right? That's where somebody wanted to pay me right now. Um, And so I thought that would be the the world. But then Psygnosis collapsed under its own weight um, unceremoniously. And I was without a job or contacts. Um, and so a long uh, a sort of wasteland experience would follow. Psygnosis oh, was the Draken studio? Psygnosis published them. Gotcha. Okay. Um, the studio that developed Draken was uh, Surreal Software. Yeah. Uh, one of one of few at the time, um, full-on g- game developers uh, with no other sort of... Um, dilutions of their focus um in seattle so uh from there you moved on and you uh were a designer on the first harry potter game i was right so uh several years at least two would pass in which i had no industry contacts and my i believe that i needed technical skills to back the sort of storytelling ambition Mm. and fortunately in that case though i will never be a brilliant technical designer I, i was right about that um I went to Microsoft and worked on the, an Encarta language learning uh, project that had a virtual reality style component. You walked around in 3D and saw full, full motion video tell you that your French was bad. What? And it was fantastic. And we, so we built terrible 3D worlds, a, a, a truly shameful 3D Paris and so forth. Um, but but that taught me how to texture. That taught me um, the basics of, of proportions, trying to keep everything consistent, all of this which would later help me as I floundered through the Unreal Tournament 
uh, tools to build mm. amateur thief levels for the purpose of a portfolio. Um, and I applied at Ionstorm Austin because my good friend, Emil Pagliarulo, or Pagliarulo as he pronounces it, um, uh, was out there at Ionstorm Austin. He had been my editor at the Adrenaline Vault. He, he's this consummate gamer, just a sort of radiant, positive sort of fellow. And he, he got me the initial call. But after interviewing with both teams, um, they felt I was too cocky, frankly. Mm. Um, I, and, you know, that, that I, I think it was unsuitably different. Uh, uh, you know, they, they felt, um, I don't know. I, I heard some rumors uh, about, about <laughs> me not being starstruck and that, that might have uh, played a role. But at Microsoft, they trained you basically to come in like you were God's gift. And uh, I, that was not what they wanted to see. You weren't um, kissing the rings. No, I wasn't kissing the rings. And and I, um, but there were various people there who I made a very positive impression on, and who gave me another shot later after shipping, as you mm. uh, brought up the Harry Potter game, um, which was a crash course. We had six months to basically reboot a game that had been scrapped, reusing the art and nothing else. Um, and so Harry Potter for the PC, uh, Sorcerer's or Philosopher's Stone, depending on where you live in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, sold 4 million copies. It was a disaster, but I met wonderful people who taught me Unreal and, and sort of calmed me down. And by the time I reapplied at Ion, I guess I came off like a human. Mm. And that was Thief Deadly Shadows? Yes, yeah. that's right. Um, so it sounds like you were a huge Thief fan before that. I was. Uh, Thief, the original Thief, um, it was one. It was a near religious experience for a very secular, very nerdy young man, <laughs> and uh, I, I had never played anything that transported me so fully. I, um, I guess I didn't know it until then. But but audio, uh, my ears convince me in ways that nothing else ever will, and more so that I found than other folks who also enjoy video games. Like they they might notice the audio or they might not. But for me. I realized how much it had to say and, and without words. And, and that was an important lesson for me because I thought mm. words were so powerful. Um, and so anyway, uh, Thief and Deus Ex, I played them back to back one year and I just knew what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. Um, it was, there was no question. What is it that you love so much about that genre? Oh, I suppose um, it is the commitment to the idea that you are not the only rational agent in this world. Your actions have um, clear, uh, discoverable consequences, that there is no right answer, uh, usually either in the narrative nor in the systemic space, mm -hmm. um, that they slowly teach you a language, or if you like, they teach you music and then ask you to play it, but they don't tell you how. Um, mm. And and there there is something... Uh, every other game that genre that, that I had played before that, and certainly many since, um, you know, the designer wants you to play a certain way or they only support a certain set of behaviors. And, and don't get me wrong, the immersive sim genre is sort of losing resolution as a meaningful term now because it's, it's bled out into, into many other genres. Um, sure. And so now you're seeing, you're seeing the most recent Zelda effectively you arguably immersive sim like and not yeah. first person but hey absolutely um and so uh but but that that feeling um that that they the game is trying to get to know you and trying to support your will in some way but not not in a purely 
uh, sort of validation fantasy way. It's, it's trying to have a meaningful dialogue with you about, about what's possible and what, what consequence might look like through the creative lens of this world that somebody put a lot of work into. You know, sometimes immersive sims have extra effort put into the writing. Um, that, mm. that helps a lot with, with all of those aforementioned goals. Um, not always. Uh, but uh, the ones that I enjoyed the most seemed to, you know, be sort of um, everything. The everywhere you look, um, there is a there is meaning. Um, and as we spoke about a minute ago, now um, in the audio, the commitment to the audio um, convincing you that this world is real in, in most immersive sims, uh, I feel like it's overlooked in other genres too. And those principles obviously carried into the Bioshock series. Oh, yes, uh, without question. So let's see. After Ion Storm Austin shuttered, um, mm -hmm. Thief 3 did not make the money that they were hoping that it would, um, nor Deus Ex Invisible War by, by several times over, I think. And so Eidos said, okay, we're, we're done with this genre for now. Um, and I was applying around. Um, several paths opened up, uh, Valve, Bethesda, um, um, some friends from my Storm who, uh, were at Midway Austin at the time, I, you know, I was very indecisive and, and sort of in love with all of them for various reasons. But the thing that got me was the idea of, okay, no, I want to make my own games. And I wasn't ready for this, but I thought I was. Mm. So I joined a small startup, um, a serious games company was trying to dip into console money and, and that effort cratered and... Uh, it but it taught me to pitch, which ended up being very useful later. Um, and I, so while the death throes of that small startup were happening, um, and I wasn't an owner or anything, I, my money wasn't on the line. I was just sort of interviewing around. Hmm. Somebody who worked with us on Thief 3, Tim Perry, reached out and said, hey, you know, this Bioshock game, I'm sure you've seen it. I said, hell yeah, System Shock 2 is one of those life-changing games. Um, they're making, they need a designer. And I thought of you. Um, the Shellbridge Cradle, my level from D3, um, did a lot of the work for me. They basically mm. hired me, no questions asked. Um, it was contract and I came in and I had, a, I don't know, about a year to go. And I've, I've later realized that because of ADHD and other things, like actually deadline mentality is, uh, forces me to transcend. Uh, I've, <laughs> I've, I've been sort of jumping from deadline to deadline my whole life, not knowing why my best work seemed to come when somebody told me you're, you're already behind. Um, the pressure. Yes. Uh, but, but I wanted to, I had this idea that I would try to one up the shell bridge cradle. Right. And, and mm -hmm. with only a year to go, it was working till 3am every night. And I don't, I don't condone this by the way. I don't, I'm not saying people should do that. I think actually it makes you slowly stupider. Um, <laughs> and I made a lot of technical mistakes. Thank God, um, people were around me who, who could help catch. Um, but, uh, Fort Frolic was the result of that effort. And, um, and yes, to your point, um, Pajak was, was, was a, at least for me, an, a kind of um, a new commitment to trying to bring the, the shooter to a main, or, I'm sorry, uh, the immersive sim to a mainstream shooter audience. Um, to, you know, uh, 2K said, okay, we're really going to market this thing. Uh, we, despite the fact that in the themes, it was extremely nerdy, um, but more, more accessible to real world thinkers, I think, to an extent, you know, Randian kind of philosophy and so forth, whether or not people knew what that would mean if somebody name dropped it, they've heard mm. those ideas mm -hmm. spouted by politicians around them their whole lives, whether or not they agree. And so a lot of that 
rugged individualism, um, you know, made it made Andrew Ryan sort of a legend in the mind of, of console players at the time. And so it was interesting trying to figure out a way to take the complex statements, often jargony and pointy headed that we were that we were allowing players to make and making ourselves with the language of immersive sims up until then and boil it down into something more kind of hard boiled, like, okay, no, really, like, how can you make the player understand what the fuck you're talking about? If you'll excuse my language. <laughs> uh, and Bioshock really was trying hard to make sure they understood. Um, and and mm. some things were compromised in, in pursuit of that goal. But I, I do think that it reached people who would never, ever have tried an immersive sim and said they enjoyed it prior to that game. And Fort Frolic was really your baby. It was. Yeah. Um, I had a skeleton. Um, I didn't come up with a story of it. Like, you know, the idea of Sandra Cohen turning you into his next protege, all that was Ken and uh, some of the design team before I got there. But it was just, <laughs> it was just an empty level and, and um, some pretty art, certainly, because my gosh, the art team on that game. Um, uh, and, and just some dead guys that you took photos of. Um, and yeah, I, I, I went at it pretty hard um, trying to trying to make it something where everything you were doing was a work of art, not tr obviously quite twisted art. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but the idea that your violence had an expressive quality and that we would give it aesthetic trappings and, and uh, congratulate you and uh, for your performance and, and mm -hmm. grade you in a way. Um, we had players sending us videos afterwards of, of a ballet scene where they were timing each wrench hit to each swell in um, <laughs> Waltz of the Flowers, which oh, was yeah. exactly what I was hoping for, right? That they would understand they were dancing. You know, the spotlights right. were all trying to say, okay, yes, this is a ridiculous, over-the-top, extremely violent shooter, but but we can, we can pretend to sophistication together. <laughs> Come with me. Let's dance. Did you have any concept during development that Fort Frolic would be the scene that it would inspire a hundred video essays and people would always talk about that from Bioshock? Mm. No, um, I, I, I hoped um, that they would notice the effort that went into it. It, mm -hmm. it was really as simple as that. I, 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 you know, I wanted to become known. I felt like my career had been derailed twice. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly I was, I was looking to make a name for myself, but I didn't, I respected everybody to rational so deeply that, that, um, I didn't, uh, allow myself to start thinking about, um, uh, all the criticism it would inspire or anything like that. And frankly, yeah. I haven't seen that much of it. A few, a few very good pieces certainly, but, um, uh, it was just, I, I was just working my ass off and trying to make sure that it felt cool. Um, it's supposed to be like a, a big pace breaker in the middle of the game. So I tried to make it feel unlike the rest of the game in some ways. Right. There's a Game Maker Toolkit video uh, that dissects it. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Oh, that I just don't think that, I have. I'll, I'll check that it out. That one's exceptional. Um, okay, so from there, then Bioshock 2, you were a creative director. Yeah, okay. So during Bioshock, again, somewhat just um, by serendipity, the desk that they put me in was in the design pit and it was right next to Alyssa Finley, the long suffering producer of Bioshock one, mm. um, who was voted the MVP of the team, you know, when, when that, when that game shipped, like she was incredible 
uh, in that role and had to do a lot of the the work um, without the traditional authority that often is, is placed um, on the producer type who's in charge of budget and so on. Like the relationship between Irrational and, and 2K at that time was very much, a, you know, creative first, right? Mm-hmm. And so she had to do the job of making sure we actually finished the thing with one hand tied behind her back. Well, she and I became pretty like, we had a strong mutual trust by the end of that uh, project. Like we would like to work together again. And I didn't know that she was in talks for Bioshock 2 at all. Mm. I don't know when she was approached. Um, All I know is that, you know, at some point Ken said, hey, what about 2K Australia? They don't, they, you know, we've got a lot of alpha around here. We don't have a lot of, they don't have a lot of alpha down there yet. Um, what do you think? And I, I was like, Australian adventure? Yes, please. So I was down there pitching a, basically a reboot of what would later become the Bureau project. Um, oh, okay. So, and I thought, again, this was, you know, creative director opportunity. I'll do my best to make sure that this, I, I wasn't an XCOM fan, but I would do my best to, to make this, this entry in that franchise, something to be proud of. What we'd later make had nothing to do with, with my pitch, by the way. <laughs> but, um, and then Alyssa Finley calls me up and says, we're going to make Bioshock 2 in Novato, California. And I, you know, I had 10,000 questions about how, why not irrational and so forth. And there, there's a, been many, uh, you know, like think pieces about that. Um, but yes, she, uh, she said, you know, you'll basically have to pack up your life and come out here and we'll only have two and a half years total to make a sequel to this in hindsight, sort of absurdly beloved, like over the top, critically acclaimed um, game. And I knew that was a bad idea, uh, the timeline. Um, but I said yes, because you don't say no to that. Um, yeah. It, it was once in a lifetime. Um, yeah. So, so what what was it like for you to uh, take a leadership role like this while also like building 2K Marin? from the ground what was that a a a challenging experience yeah um so we in hindsight somewhat naively thought that we would try to build a rational but coming from a a sort of um i mean you, you can literally find the article probably the first article on the studio like we use the word love a lot mm. <laughs> a sort of nougaty center of, of, of unicorn guts and it, it the the invisible gun t- was to our head from the word go though we had to ship up sequel not a sequel i'm sorry a port to the playstation of bioshock and then the actual sequel back to back um with a studio that didn't exist so on the plus side everybody and their genius awakened dog wanted to work at that studio mm-hmm. um so recruitment uh was a, a problem of kind of throughput not candidate quality we we had the absolute best of the best apply there and that that was um that gave us the ability to eventually build what i, I still believe is one of the best video game development teams that ever existed it just it was made for this one particular purpose to make this sequel and then they sort of didn't know what they wanted to do with it and that that will always remain a shame in my mind hmm. um but anyway yes uh it it was unbelievably challenging i was hmm, 
I think I was at the very end of my twenties, maybe, maybe turning 30. And, um, I had never directed a full game before. I'd been a lead designer promoted midway through Thief three. I had been a lead since then pitching things around, but never the creative director of a project with that level of scrutiny and the lead writer at the same time. Um, and so, you know, there was a long, difficult process of me learning how to trust leads, how to delegate, uh, what deadlines look like. All the while, by the way, not knowing about ADHD or any of that stuff. Hmm. Um, so I didn't sleep. I just didn't sleep. My, my compensation tactic was to, to spend most of those two years on three hours or less. Huh. Um, and, you know, I think it showed in ways that are, in hindsight, um, both a little tragic because I, I, I screwed up various aspects of my life along with shipping the game that did reasonably well, but also um, somewhat amusing. Like there's a, I remember uh, about a year ago, like some post when it came out about, about what it was really like to work at 2K Marin. And <laughs> the rumor was that, that I would go off and, and come back high on mushrooms and other psychedelics. <laughs> and, uh, and just people wouldn't know what I was talking about in meetings because I was so high. I was just sleep deprived. I would go home and sleep <laughs> for 30 minutes. <laughs> and so oh, I was deeply boring and uh, as a human being, but, but, uh, pushing myself to, you know, to, because I, I, I felt like I had to, I, I, I felt like there was no way that, that, that what was set before me was possible unless, unless I just, you know, um, used up parts of who I was, I suppose. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. Hard. Yes, it was hard. Uh, I could have used those two words. <laughs> well, I mean, have you ever thought about doing a bunch of mushrooms in the middle of the day and going back to work? Listen, I have become a less boring person since. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good answer. Um, Bioshock 2 is so interesting because it strikes me as one of those games that uh, uh, upon release, uh, people were overly critical of, but over time, people have come to appreciate a lot more. What's what is your relationship with that game now? Uh, I I still feel that it was um, with those constraints creatively unnecessary. I think the best thing about Bioshock is they take you to uh, a, a faraway place with a, a set of ideals that are um, literally uh, inscribed in the wallpaper in some cases, right? Mm -hmm. um, Everywhere you look, um, it's it's asking you to question some belief you've got, or or at least question the beliefs of the people who lived here, um, and and so I was told out, outright we had to stay in Rapture, and I thought that was a bad idea too, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I made the best of it, and so it will always I'll always wonder what it could have been if we had sort of done it right in that sense. Um, secondly. You know, as, as the first ga full game that I had shipped as a writer, I have lots of criticism about individual um, sort of execution uh, of, of parts of the script. There are characters that I was more confident in than others and some that, that would now make me cringe. Um, mm. But I, I, I'm happy with what I think people might be responding to. Um, or certainly, I've, I've heard a little uh, of, the, of the 10 years too late uh, mm -hmm. sort of love for it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is that it, it focuses on the little people. Um, it's 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 trying to to speak about the consequences of living in the shadow of great men, um, and 
and most of the people it focuses on are are in some way uh, not the power players that the first game wanted you to look at, um, and just and largely just sort of see how how interesting it is when power players become corrupt. Well, this is this was about everybody else, and um, and then finally, uh, you know, I'll, I'll I'll say that the I think that there's something in the the sort of parent-child relationship of it. Um, somebody asked me internally what was it about, and I tried to, and they wanted me to articulate it in a sentence, and it was the sentence I had at the time, and, and it was certainly in the back of my head as I was trying to write it, was by the time we understand our legacy, it's too late to change it. That that you are influencing people all the time, and, and these people who you're supposed to, to sort of rear um, are, are absorbing all the elements of you, and all the stuff you're trying to hide, you know, it's, it's going to yeah. end up in them, not necessarily reflecting reflected but refracted um it's going to surprise you in in some ways and i didn't i wasn't a parent i, I didn't know but i suspected and I'd, I'd certainly lived through the that side of it from the child side mm-hmm. um uh that angle i suppose and 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 frankly i i felt that most of the people around me were going to struggle as parents too um i think a lot of us had fears about that and um it was pretty easy to write about that from the perspective of somebody who'd kind of been forced into a parent relationship suddenly and mm. feeling really like a kind of overgrown child. Um, and I think the big daddy does a decent job of, of, of kind of trundling around and doing their best, but you know, not really giving the nurturing side of it. Like it, it's a, it's uh, it, not quite fully consensual from both sides, right? The the children right. are abducted from their parents and forced into these bonds, and that's 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 just Bioshock. That's that's kind of more the world than than any kind of real speech about reality. But non ideal circumstances are what most parents experience, and I feel like the game does a decent job of of putting you under those kind of stresses and and a very simple branching choice structure that has to do with your choices, kind of um, being reflected and or refracted by your your little sister, um, the one that you meet at the beginning. It's, it, you know, I, I, do, I can't go back and play it in answer to your sort of overall meta question. I can't go mm-hmm. back and play it. It is um, too much a crystallization of all of my strengths and flaws mm-hmm. at the time. Um, and it, it would be a combination of missing certain freedoms I had at that time and also just being like, oh, buddy, oh, no, no, no. Well, <laughs> did you have to... Did you have to throw that many C bombs into an AI dialogue? But okay, <laughs> all right. It was uh, who are you trying to impress? Uh, okay, so then what? What is the timeline between Bioshock Infinite and Two K Marin unofficially shattering? Mm. Timeline. Honestly, I am not the best source. I suspect that somebody has. Um, you know, in some expose made that more clear. The reason I don't know for certain is because I was taken off of a new IP we were supposed to do together with Mm. the creative leads of Bioshock 2 to save the Bureau. Okay. I had no interest in that. So you left Marin back to Australia at that point? No. um, No. uh, I would visit occasionally, but no, the... I. I was moved onto the bureau in-house at 2K mm. Marin for a while. I did my best to give it 
any kind of political backing, historical backing. I, I wanted to at least talk about the 60s, right? Mm -hmm. Like I didn't want to, I didn't want to work on it, but it was already set in the 50s. And so I, I sort of skewed that a little bit to an era that I found more transformative and interesting. Um, and, and then they, then the president of 2K said, I need you to go work on Bioshock Infinite. Um, they need help. And, um, so that was sometime into development. Ken Levine also reached out at the same time. Yeah, it was, it was okay. during, during that period. And, and between the two of them, I was like, okay, well, this is, first of all, this is more up my alley. And second of all, they're both asking and they don't agree mm -hmm. on anything. <laughs> um, so it must be important. Yes. Uh, so I, exactly when unofficially they said was, it, it was going to end. I'm not sure. I, I was, mm -hmm. um, I was in the wind at that point and, and living in Boston again. Okay. Um, so then after infinite, was it straight into question? Nearly. Yeah. Nearly? So, okay. um, Steven Alexander as the effects wizard, um, and a very, now very good friend, um, who worked with me on really any important sequence of Bioshock one. Mm -hmm. He did the entire intro sequence with the splicer behind the window where the flickering lights exposes her at different front sort of frames. Um, uh, and then, you know, there's just tons of light control and atmospherics and stuff. All of that was the, the two of us working together. Then later in Fourth Frolic, he touched almost every sequence that mattered. Mm. Um, and we just clicked immediately. He was a huge Thief 3 fan. He'd worked, he'd made his own level with the Thief 3 tools that I fought to get released, despite nobody thinking it was important um, back, back at Eidos. Um, and so it was just, it was, it was like magic. It was like, we'd already been best friends for a very long time. And, um, we worked again together on infinite, um, fairly extensively because I was sort of in this weird, I don't even know what I was, uh, just a, just a kind of non-specific floating shadow lead. Um, was it just fatigue from all the years of Bioshock? Yeah, it, that was a lot of it, but not, mm. um, it's funny. Talking about great structures decaying. Mm -hmm. Also fatigue about AAA. Sure. Um, I talked to Steven. He said, I don't think I want to do this anymore. I said, I don't think I want to either. Also, various friends of ours from Bioshock 2 had started multiple independent studios, shipped indie games of their own, uh, you know, and I, we were impressed by by what they were able to pull off with few resources and, and Unity had come out in the meantime. Um mm. And so we said, okay, let's, let's make something that they'll never let us make again. And that was the magic circle. Um, partway through that, the pile of uh, semi to non-technical garbage that we had cobbled together uh, was rescued by Kane Shin, uh, a friend who had worked on Thief 3 with me and then would later go on to work on Dishonored and so forth. He, he, was, he freed up. He joined and became the third uh, co-owner of the company. Okay. Uh, okay, let's talk about the Blackout Club. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what we're all here for. Um, so the Blackout Club is a, a difficult game to pin down because it's because there's there's just really nothing else like it. But I'm wondering, how, how do you describe the game? It is a cooperative uh, horror game in the teens versus monsters genre. Mm-hmm. And although it has little elements of PvP, 
just just for fun, really, as a treat, um, in which a an ongoing community driven, um, entirely live uh, game narrative is playing out, performed by actors who play um, mythic figures, uh, best summed up as voices in your head, um, but upon whom people have have pinned the moniker gods. And uh, they ask us to do twisted and strange things that seem counterintuitive. And, and they're played by real people in real time with the player um, back and forth. Um, uh, if you've played Dungeons and Dragons or any of the tabletop games that it inspired, um, the Black Oak Club is obviously heavily influenced by what happens when you summon a demon and ask it its name in, in, in a game like that. The first time I played Blackout Club, I was, um, I was in a, a lobby with some really helpful people. Every time I've played the game, I've been in a lobby with really helpful people. But uh, they started telling me, I told them I, I was reviewing the game for the gamer, and they started telling me about the, the story and the background and everything that's gone on. And I was like, oh, wow, this sounds really cool. Like, how, is this a quest line? Like, how do I start the story? And they're like, oh, no, this is just like stuff that happened to me. <laughs> and I, I asked them like, what, okay, how do I get the story? And they're like, well, like, so-and-so had this experience and then they came and told all of us. And I just, and it was, it's, was so mind-blowing to think that a, a game story could be told directly to the players on a, like, a personal relationship. I, where, where did you even get an idea to do this, like, interactive theater storytelling in a game? Um, sort of a combination, I suppose, of watching the way that games and game content were headed um, in the the industry as it was as transforming away from what I recognized uh, as, a, as a young game developer, mm. which is to say it used to be a bunch of stuff that we put on a $60 disc and you individually bought it Maybe you shared your opinions online, but that was it. Mm -hmm. Two, um, a sort of, well, for lack of a better term, transmedia <laughs> experience, uh, which many more people total seem to enjoy uh, by vicarious uh, viewership, right? Whether whether it was Twitch or YouTube or or just talking about it on the forums, like the more and more it became the conversation about the game and not so much the game that, mm -hmm. that was really um, gauging its cultural impact. And I wanted to embrace that on some level. Um, and I felt like there were some powerful parallels that you could draw between what happens to religions as, as they try to educate the next generation about what God wants and and um, how uh, the message mutates, uh, like mm. like the telephone game um, over time, and and you get sects um, and d dogmatic uh, sort of branches and just infinite uh, sort of variability to the point where people who might be the descendants of a single faith end up fighting each other, um, and so 
the the notion of of a of a horror game that is that is um like Call of Cthulhu or something um experienced as whispers and rumors and partial understanding and uh and sh- shared share shared between the community to help um to help everyone understand and everyone drive progress obviously ARGs had been doing this in their own way but I hadn't seen yeah. it fused with um, with a video game in a way that that at least clicked for me, and I hadn't seen live performance happen um, in a game since people text LARPing in Ultima Online. You know, like mm. the stuff that that while was powerful, um, and uh, one of the actors and I share a, a very strong affinity for the end of the EverQuest beta when the gods walk the earth. Um, and part of the reason he took the project is that it gave him that feeling. But um, for the most part, that was it, right? It was sort of a, a dead thing. And, and part, and this is a sneak preview, because of the problems of scale, right? Like the screenshots were not a way to, for anybody to feel that at the time. Well, now there's VODs and there's YouTube. And, and at least you, you're getting closer to the, the experience. And some people don't even have the, the skill or the patience to get to those moments themselves anyway. So they're seeing stuff that they wouldn't, period. Uh, even if you could put it in front of them. So... Anyway, back to the to your question, like the the I wanted to fuse all of those notions into one space, and it was massively ambitious, and I recognize that. You know, the the Blackout Club's real flaws were that it was trying to do something absurdly new, essentially a a runaway Ouija board with a fuel injected engine <laughs> strapped, <laughs> strapped to it, and also a regular ass video game where you stick yeah. around and try to try to activate objects and move them to point B. Right. Um, and, and so we question pitched it internally to ourselves and, and, and decided to just try to do all of it. Um, and that's how, that's how you get the thing that it is now, which is um, I'm proud of in various ways, but I'm also, I also see all the things that we, that we could have done if, if either we'd been better at marketing or if we'd solved the scale problem, et cetera. So first of all, how did how did you prime your player base to even know how to participate in the story? Not well enough, first of all, but uh, it was a combination of our own attempts over social to drive mm. them to Discord. So we knew that because of scope, we would never be we would never be able to integrate our own sophisticated chat protocol into the game. We had stock chat, um, stock voice from Unreal, and 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 we had party chat from the consoles. Although that actually ended up being a hurdle, not not a not a benefit. Discord yeah. was phenomenal. Sound quality was phenomenal. Pe- people already would flock to game discords and talk all day about the thing they were obsessed by. So, really, most of the game is on of the live story game is driven by sharing through Discord. And our, our Discord community is pretty welcoming, um, pretty, uh, I suppose, sympathetic to um, people from all walks of life. But it can be overwhelming when you, when you first join it. Um, people are, are, you know, the, the people who talk the most um, have been playing the game the longest. And so some mm-hmm. of the things they say, you know, are, are even more cryptic to, to a starting player than, than the actual game is. So, um, it worked for us tremendously in that there was at least one place you could go to learn what the hell was going on with, with the live story. But um, 
we really wish we could have integrated it, uh, made all of that just a, a part of the game that, that you could seamlessly go back and forth between the two. But it would have taken more business acumen than we had at mm. the time um, to set things up with Discord, not to mention actual physical time. But but in a way, it's also to the benefit of the experience because it it because of it's sort of inaccessible. It also makes you feel like you've really discovered something. Uh, in a way, it's like it, it's like because you have to work for it, it makes you feel like you're more part of it too. I agree with that sentiment. Um, <laughs> as a business owner, obviously, I wish the Blackout sure. Club had had made a big enough splash to just make another one or extend it. It didn't. Um, it's going to break even, but on a much slower timeline than than would have that would have saved us, I mm. suppose. Um, we are working on it now. We just executed the a live event that I think you saw. Yeah, out of pure passion. That's that's a residual budget. That's res that's that's us just throwing our our lives into it basically after hours because we love it and we love those people, um, the players who stuck with us through the pandemic. But uh, yes, I think to your point, um, most artistic works, not all, but most artistic works um, have two or three uh, elements of them that make them special. And yeah. quite often, though, are those um, attributes are the reason why it will be of a limited appeal, <laughs> um, right? So, so that, that feeling of discovery, that, that, that need for depth, of, uh, depth and breadth of attention that, that yeah. our community um, tends to demand of people, um, often somewhat at odds, by the way, with the amount of time in a given week that, let's say, a really big streamer has to devote to mm. a game like the Blackout Club, right? It's an, that, that is one thing we didn't anticipate is, oh, yeah, that's right. You have to be an arch nerd yeah. for this kind of game. And, and most of them have just this very limited window to, to play it and, and, you, and to try to understand all of it in that moment is not going to happen. So um, we, we saw too late how... Um, how much, how demanding it was of of mm. of a player to really to really see the beauty. Um, uh, those folks who have stuck with us, I think, get something out of it they can get nowhere else. Their their loyalty to us is uh, breathtaking um, because it but it because it's unique. Uh, but yeah, we we never did solve the accessibility problem really. Um, in, in not in the sense of physical accessibility, obviously, just the psychological accessibility. And, and, and the other sort of limiting aspect of it that makes it so beautiful is that after things happen, it's gone. Like there, you, you can't catch up with the Blackout Club. Like you had to be there to be part of it. And I think that's like what make what makes a the community so dedicated and so strong. But it's also kind of like as an artistic piece, what makes it so compelling. Yeah, that's, that's the line. Trying to think <laughs> of your time here as a mandala, like <laughs> the the yes, I, I didn't. I hope it doesn't come off in hindsight uh, uh, as petulant, but but definitely over the past couple of years leading up to the Blackout Club, well. So now, now several years rather, because it's been it's been out for three, give or take. Um, I had become aware of that most of this classic work that you know I grew up with, the games that really 
meant something to me. You can't play anymore. They, they have vanished. They're, yeah. They're emulator nerds at best. Um, sometimes video game museums that I've seen here and there, but largely unlike classic movies, they're gone. And that was painful. You know, it, it felt like they're, if you want to make any kind of dent in history and you're working in video games, you need to make something that alters the way genres work um, or is wildly, wildly successful to the point where they'll keep remaking it later. Hmm. And that's not even the same thing, right? That's, mm -hmm. you know, you can still see the original Casablanca, but, but so saying like, okay, well, what other forms of art have a limited run? And lean into that. Um, if you never saw the original cast um, do, oh, I don't know, uh, Phantom Cats. of the Opera or Hamilton or Cats or whatever, <laughs> yeah. you're never going to again, like the, the those moments of past. Right. Um, and so this was this was me saying, okay, well, if we if we are to um, go quietly into that good night, let's at least do something really interesting let's let's make sure that that we stick in the memories of the people who were there yeah um and and hopefully get them to bring more in in the meantime right because right and we never that's the other thing that we didn't solve and, and wanted to set out to is effectively charging admissions after the fact charging some kind of subscription to stay with the live services to fund mm -hmm. the ongoing live performances right that if we wanted the run to extend how could we recharge people MMOs do this already. There's already subscription-based games, but we were not, we were too small. The infrastructure for it was way beyond us. And, mm. and so unfortunately, at some point, the game would be put on sale for too little money and we would not be able to afford the the rates of the, the brilliant union actors that we used for the game, right? So so we knew that at some point we'd have to end it. Um, and uh, we didn't realize the pandemic was coming and that we'd pause it instead, but um, maybe we'll get to that. Yeah. Well, uh, so, so the, the end is in sight is what you're saying. It is. It absolutely is. Yeah. Um, I have, I have made as much as I possibly could, um, of the content that we put on, not on, see that there you can see, I, my, my beard is growing as we speak. Cause I almost <laughs> said on disc, there ain't no disc. <laughs> Uh, the content that, that in the last big release, um, as I could through text, um, there are characters that can speak to you through text message and it looks just like a quest message. And then suddenly yeah. start saying like your name and, and you know, that that's always good to freak people out. And, um, similarly the, the voices can speak into your head and you close your eye, your in-game eyes and see text written there. And I have made absolutely as, as much as I could of all of that. I'm trying not to use the problematic Buffalo term, but, but basically um, the, the fans said, okay, we're interested in this character. We're interested in, why is this this way? Why is that, you know, is, is that, that photograph of somebody face down in that room for a reason? Or is it because the 3D artist did it one time because we didn't have a texture yet and forgot? <laughs> and I will, I will answer that question in text message over great uh, lengths of time. And, um, and they've enjoyed it. The, the people who are as nerdy as I am have, have enjoyed it. Um, and we've gone back and forth and, and, um, and extended the lifetime mm. of, of, the, of the product as more and more people recommend, because there's still nothing like it. There's still people like this game talks to you. It says your name. It'll, it'll, yeah. it'll shorten your username. It'll respond back to you. That, and a lot of people think it's just an, 
a brilliant AI. Um, the and the Mechanical Turk of that um, is something that still gets word of mouth. Um, uh, and so, so you know, that's why it'll eventually break even. But I'm out of I'm out of new stuff that could meaningfully be said about the same tiny town in the same tiny corner of a world that I've been working on since 2006. I would need more more content time. I would need mm. sequel budget um, mm. to, to do what I'd really want to do to, to, to expand it. So instead, don't do that. Don't, don't, you know, don't take something you love and, and like stretch it up so thin that, that people, you know, can't even see it anymore mm -hmm. to, to become invisible. And I, I think that we were in danger of that, not because of artistic intent, because of the, the pandemic, but now our cast are able to, under very safe, very controlled circumstances, do a couple of events for us, and and that, and so we have reintroduced those characters, the speaking characters, and uh, yeah, we're wrapping it up. Um, it's I've, I've been keeping this little lighthouse lit with my every weekend for mm. all of the the entire pandemic, trying to get to the point where we could get we could safely get the cast back in, and now now it's happening was there a narrative roadmap from the beginning? Was there always an end game planned? Uh, yes. Um, um, in the sense that um, I have a structure in mind and I have some dramatic turns in mind, but who is involved and what their motivations are and whether they die early or, or, um, or live to the end or, um, uh, whether they they experience any kind of um, change of heart, mm -hmm. um, that is all community driven. I'm I'm listening like a dungeon master or, or game master would in a tabletop game to what people think is happening and what they think might happen, and and doing my best to adjust. Um, that's that is why I haven't quit. Um, yeah, the, there, there is something addictive about about how the players surprise me and what I can do with that. Um, it's, I try not to get too distracted by stuff that I know I can't execute well. Somebody comes up with a cool idea and I know that we don't have the visual content to back it up. I don't chase that. Mm. But if it's just, you know, a, a cool um, conceit for why a certain character might be there or um, what, a, what a, a, a line I wrote three years ago might actually mean that wasn't actually connected to the deeper mystery. Sometimes I say, yeah, okay, let's, let's connect it now because that what you just said makes sense and, and is better than what I thought of. Mm -hmm. Um, I try to use that sparingly, but, but, um, that's the best tabletop I've ever played. The dungeon master was doing that the whole time. So I, I'm, I'm trying to, to walk that line, I suppose. It, it, it must be so rewarding not to lead you, but to, to be able to in get that direct feedback from your players instantly, like n not later, not even in a forum in the moment, you know, if, if they like, if what they don't like. Like you, you must just get so much gratification from that, from like just seeing it on their faces, you know? Well, yes. To an extent, I, what is the hackneyed line? You see every TV psychic say, it's my gift. It's my curse. <laughs> it, is, it is definitely uh, boatloads of both because um, on the one hand, you know, literally in, in some sense, um, we we're trying to do a horror game about, information jumping from person to person and, and mutating and, and coming to life. Yeah. Um, <laughs> to watch that go wrong can be <laughs> just infinite facepalm, right? Oh, just shit. full time. Yeah. Uh, 
where, where, you know, I did something because I thought it was cool or creepy or cryptic and it gets wildly misinterpreted and throws people off. And it would, it would sterilize the space to constantly be saying, no, no, dumb, bad. No, no, that's not what right. I meant. I try to very occasionally say, okay, no, I don't want you, I don't want to, to eat up everybody's mental cycles on stuff that has absolutely no value. But if, if they're off in some way, I try not to correct it unless, unless, um, unless I feel like it's, it's actually leading the community to a sense of despair and not understanding anything. Right. Um, you know, you don't, I, I am not actually Cthulhu. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You don't want them to run off in completely the wrong direction. No, exactly. And I value their time, which they may or may not know, but, but I think constantly about how best to use it and how not to waste it. And, and so, um, you know, the, the characters have gotten more direct as time has gone on and, and we're getting closer to the end and, and we're, I'm opening fewer doors and closing a lot more. Mm. Um, and I think that's healthy. I mean, God, they, they deserve some kind of closure, uh, after all this time. You, you've compared it a lot to like a D and D game where you play the role of the dungeon master, but it seems to me that one big difference there is that there is such a, veil between you and the player that it seems like you've tried to keep a certain amount of distance as a developer to like help with with the immersion of the experience is that is that the case yeah it's uh, you know david Pittman who works with us um and has for a long time he shipped the blackout club with us you know he taught me the term kayfabe from wrestling Mm. um yeah um for various reasons um in the community, um, I have a real strong aversive response to being kind of focused on. Um, I worry about parasocial uh, instinct, mm-hmm. um, and and also the the effect of being the center of attention, even on me. Like I, I'd rather it be about their experiences and and the work to an extent, um, rather than than being like oh. The, the we know that Jordan plays all of these characters and these mm. other people play these characters. I, I that part of the magic of the Ouija board is you're not exactly sure who moved it. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's really important to hang on to that at least through the end. I, I'm going to be very candid with people through the end um, uh, if they want to ask about implementation and so on because I'm hoping. And I this is a yeah. I'd love to do another live game one day. Let's just put it that way. And yeah. I'd like to learn from it and and to get people's feedback about what they actually understood, what they didn't. And, and that means being pretty honest, I think. Yeah. I, well, I'm sure you learned a ton from being the first person to ever do this. Um, how, how has the storytelling changed over the years as you've learned more about it? That's a really good question. Uh, well, the first contact... Um, it's odd. It's, it's, I suppose in a weird way, our, our effectively our call script, like in telemarketing or something has evolved almost in the same way as one of our monstrous, uh, voices. Mm. Um, because we've learned what gets a reaction faster. We've learned, we've learned what to say that, that lets people understand that it's, that at the very least this thing can really hear them, um, sooner, uh, how to personalize it, how to turn them against each other, how to just make the whole thing scarier and, and uh, more impactful with less time because, mm-hmm. because the problems of scale were killing us from the off. Right. Like we hit and, um, and also I wanted to make it possible for more people to run it. So we started to, 
record a lot of the the sort of first contact visit um, results such that multiple people on the team or even people hired from the outside could could do that um, because it's not really you know at that you're just being very mysterious at that time you don't need to know the world inside and out um, if you know how this particular character talks speak as one our, our antagonist um, and and sort of secondly um, so all of that has become optimized I guess is what I'm getting at that's one mm. way it's changed another way it has changed is um, it's kinder. Mm. Um, it, it was, it was, we started out with a, a pretty relentlessly horrific, um, story in mind, but then the world started to end around us in real time. Yeah. And I could not steal every, uh, ounce of hope out of people every week. Um, and, uh, you know, my principles on what makes good horror, um, needed to reflect the world a little bit. Right. And, and horror requires humor. Or requires empathy, and so we leaned a little more on the on the latter um, uh, than we would have otherwise. Uh, just when you know, uh, trying to scare the hell out of people. Um, so I, th I think it's become a little better rounded in that sense. Um, and and then beyond that, uh, what we talked about before, relative to the average video game, the degree to which the under the hood plot has transformed is radical. Um, I, I can't. This is one place where I, I have to sort of stop short and just say there are some fundamental changes to the ending from uh, how people behaved. Okay. Um, are you able to say when the end is going to be? No. Okay. Um, we are bound by the, the schedules of our, our, our brilliant and, and fairly sought after cast. Sure. Um, so it, it uh, yeah, I'm not sure. We will do our best to, to trumpet it um, again, um, but yeah, our social reach is not great. Like ultimately, uh, we we have never been very good as a studio at uh, selling ourselves. Um, it's it's the opposite of what we were trained to do. It's the opposite of how we were raised. It's it is it is its own powerful talent. We've worked with various folks who are good at that, but they're contract right. They're not they yeah. don't live, live and work with us every day. Um, that's something that we have tried to get better at. And, uh, and I certainly wish we had been better at for the sake of the blackout club. So as a, as a result, I'm not sure how much reach it'll have when we're, when we're approaching our, our finale, but we'll make sure that the videos are preserved. And there's a lot of pretty cool making of footage that I think is going to blow some people's minds. Um, oh, that's cool. Uh, which, you know, if we ever have to, have to, um, drum up interest in, in any kind of future project that that'll be, that'll be there waiting. Um, but for the time being, you know, like, uh, the blackout club, we're just going to exhale for a minute. Yeah. Uh, when, when we finish it, you know, I, I've always kept an eye on the blackout club community just because I, I don't think I've ever seen such, such a, a diehard and emotionally invested, uh, group of people. And it's, it's so obvious that they're the, the way that they are able to engage with the game in this personal way is what, um, you know, made it for special, so special for them. And I just, I hope, you know, like what the, this game that you made is like, uh, an incredible feat, you know, it, it's a, it's a really special thing. And I, and I know that there's a lot of people that, uh, that will never forget, you know, the blackout club. I think it's a, a pretty amazing thing. 
Uh, that means a great deal to me. Um, I, it'll, I'll have to get some significant distance from it before I can appreciate it for its strength, right? And yeah. and um, that's been true of everything I've ever touched. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Jordan. It was a great chat with you. Oh, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for, for reaching out. That's our show for the week. Thank you so much for listening. Been a big fan of the Blackout Club for a long time, and it was a lot of fun to sit down with Jordan and learn about the making of the game. This is your first episode. Uh, thanks a lot for listening. I hope you'll stick around. We have a big team at The Gamer and a wide range of expertise. So I think we put on a pretty good show, and uh, I, I hope you'll listen. If you'd like to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, that helps the show a lot. If you'd like to get in touch with me directly, you can find me on Twitter at Epic Schweitzer and tell me what you think of the show. We'll see you next week.